This is the J. Scott Outdoors podcast on Western big game hunting and fishing, and I'm your host, J. Scott. I live and breathe hunting and fishing, spending half the year in the field enjoying God's creation. I hope you'll enjoy hearing about our adventures. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we're fortunate to have a mule deer nut with us. We've got Breck Bundy from Washington, Utah. Breck owns and operates MDA Outfitters, which stands for Mule Deer Addiction Outfitters. Uh, Breck is known for harvesting some of the largest bucks off the Arizona Strip uh, every year. And uh, Breck has actually guided four people that I know personally uh, himself uh, to, I believe, all bucks over 200 inches. Uh, Mr. Breck Bundy, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Jay. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm looking forward to having you here with us and uh, letting some of my listeners uh, hear about your passion for mule deer and and the love that uh, you share for those animals in that area. Um, Breck, why don't you give me a little background on you and 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 tell me about your family and your kids and uh, how many you've gotten, etc. Gotcha. I've uh, I've got three boys, believe it or not. Our our youngest is uh, 11 months old, and it was our our uh, or try for a little girl, as my wife put it. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> her her last stand for a little girl. Her, her huh? last stand for a little girl. But my oldest my oldest boy, uh, Aiden, is eight years old, and then my middle boy, Crew, is uh, five, going on six. He'll be six here in another month. And then my youngest, like I said, was uh, uh, Jax. His uh, he's eleven months, almost a year old. Crazy how fast they grow up. Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, Breck, why don't you give me a little background on how you started hunting, uh, you know, your location to the Arizona Strip and, and uh, you know, growing up and such, uh, you know, you're, I believe you guys have property on the Arizona Strip. Give me a little background there. Okay, yeah, we do have, have property on the Strip, but uh, it's kind of interesting. My grandpa, uh, on my dad's side, obviously, my grandpa Bundy was actually born and raised uh, out on the Arizona Strip. Uh, what they refer to, a lot of people call it Bundyville now, but uh, Mount Trumbull. They have uh, the, the Mount Trumbull schoolhouse right there and, and whatnot, but they homesteaded the property, and uh, he was born and raised there and, and didn't move into St. George until I believe he was 18, 19 years old or something like that. But uh, So it obviously got me, uh, you know, I grew up, it's home away from home out on the Strip, and, and I spend uh, pretty much all my free time out there, you know, filming, photographing, looking for sheds, you name it, uh, hunting coyotes, you know, we do a lot of that, and chasing lions, we just got back from a lion hunt uh, last Tuesday and, and killed a killed a cat, so. Uh, and, and Breck, how, you live in um, Washington, Utah, which for my listeners, give me a little bit of ge- geography lesson on where you live in relation to the Arizona Strip. You obviously live in Utah, but we're talking about the Arizona Strip. Correct, yeah, St. Saint, Saint George, most people are familiar with St. George, Utah, it's right in the far south west corner of the state um, Washington's just kind of a suburb of, of St. George and we're only oh I would say two or three miles four miles from the from the Arizona state line and so it's just a real short uh, short drive from my home uh, to the to the strip so gotcha so ever since you were just uh, knee high to a grasshopper you've been bouncing around all over the strip I, I have I have uh, my dad you know I was really lucky my dad uh, loved being on the strip and, and love, you know, taking me and my brothers and stuff out and, you know, hunting rabbits or, or filming or doing whatever. And so I learned at a young age, uh, uh, a lot of the, the strip, you know, and, and learned the, the roads and where the deer hang and stuff like that. But. Well, I can honestly say having hunted with you, I was up there fortunate to go for four or five days on uh, Daniel Franco's hunt a couple years ago. Uh, he had a 13B tag and you were guiding him. Uh, I had a chance to be around you in your camp and meet your brother and meet your dad and, and uh, some of your friends. And uh, it was just a pleasure being in your camp. Uh, I can truly say that uh, I feel like I'm one of the faster drivers that I know off-road and can, you know, get to, from point A to point B, but I, I, I truly feel like uh, I, I move in slow motion compared to the speed at, at, 
which you uh, travel. That was uh, quite an experience. Yeah, we <laughs> we know pretty well and, and definitely uh, uh, move pretty quick when we're trying to get from, from one spot to another, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, one of the things, um, when you gave me the map uh, where we were um, camping and, and, you know, you said, well, um, uh, you know, gas up and, you know, uh, be ready to go when you leave St. George. And I think it was like 90 some miles or something to where, where we were camping. And I was just like 90 miles. What am I going back into, you know, I'm halfway back to Phoenix. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's pretty crazy that the strip is just so big and vast. And, and in that particular spot where we were hunting, you know, we were, like you said, we were 90 plus miles out and, uh, and pretty close to the Grand Canyon. I mean, we were right there on the, on the, on the edge of it for sure. And um, if I remember right, a story that you told me, and, and the details are fuzzy, but I remember it being a great story, and and I'm sure you have a bunch of stories. Before we actually get into the mule deer, you know, all, all the stories about the mule deer, uh, I believe you were scouting maybe when you were a kid or something, and a quad broke down or a truck broke down, and you ended up riding a quad or something like 50-some miles um, back to town, or there was some elaborate story. Um, can you can you elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was actually me and my dad and and my brother Bronson, who you met. Uh, we actually went out to it was in the winter, and we actually went out to do a little coyote hunting. And my dad had, at the time had a had an old 1979 two wheel drive Toyota pickup. Which and how, how old were you and Bronson I, roughly at the time? I was probably 12 years old. Um, Bronson would have been you know eight or something like that. But uh, we we made it up on we went up on Mount Trumbull, which is on 13A, which we'll probably get into a little later. But um, we went up there and we made it up just fine. And then and then the sun came up and it started, uh, you know, it, was, it had snowed and stuff, and and the roads were just a mess. And and it warmed up and and we actually ended up getting got got stuck right on the road. Like we just couldn't go, you know, we couldn't go forward, couldn't go backwards. It was just a muddy mess. And so we did. We actually had an old uh, 1985 Honda three wheeler. A uh, big red three-wheeler that we had to unload, uh -huh. and me, my dad, and my brother uh, drove it all the way back into St. George. That's unbelievable. All three of you on one of those. That's <laughs> yeah. awesome. And I'm sure you have other stories like that. Um, Breck, why don't you give me a little bit of a breakdown between uh, 13A and 13B, starting off with 13A. Uh, and give me a little bit of a geography lesson on, you know, maybe the boundaries of 13A and some of the characteristics uh, in 13A as maybe it compares to the geography and some of the terrain and, and you know, bucks and what have you of 13B. Gotcha. Thir 13A is uh, Fredonia, Arizona. If uh, your listeners are familiar with Fredonia, when, once you come into Fredonia, uh, you cross the Kanab Creek, and that's kind of the east border of 13A. So the Kanab Creek is a tributary that runs down into the to the Grand Canyon, and and then the border, uh, the north border of 13A is Highway 89 that runs from Fredonia to Pipe Springs to Colorado City, uh, down into Hurricane Utah, and then obviously into uh, into Utah. But uh, the border on the west is the Hurricane Rim or the Hurricane Fault Line that uh, is splits 13B and 13A on the west side. Um, okay. And, and as far as the, the bucks are concerned in both units, I mean, you know, obviously both produce some giant, giant deer. Um, and, you know, I, I personally prefer 13B over 13A just because of, of uh, there's, there's more country to hunt, if, uh, in, in my opinion. Is, Not, is, it, is it geographic as far as size or just pockets of deer? There's more deer in, in B than A. There, there are typically more deer on 13B, and, and geographically, it's, there's, there's more huntable country, more, uh, more country to hunt on 13b 13a there's a lot of antelope country out on the north side of the of the unit you know wide open flats and and whatnot um okay and, and so so generally there are there's more deer on 13b more places to hunt because of of the terrain and the country and and stuff like that but um 13b actually like i said on the east side of 13b the hurricane rim that runs all the way into hurricane utah and and beyond that's that's the east border of uh 13b um, the north side is uh, right here out of St. George, just south of St. George. 
runs all the way over to, you know, across I-15 and into the uh, Virgin River Gorge and goes all the way down to the Nevada border on the west and south side and, and, uh, and the Grand Canyon basically is the border on the south side of 13B. And is the south border of 13A pretty much the Grand Canyon National Park as well? It is. It is. Okay. Okay. And then his, historically speaking, uh, you know, the old timers that used, you know, Ted Riggs and, you know, a bunch of the old timers that, you know, used to your grandpa and all those guys that used to hunt out there a lot. I mean, um, was the Arizona Strip all, was it? ever just one unit and they just called it the strip or um or how, how did it get it divided from a to b or, or maybe you don't even know i don't you know, know i i don't know that right off the top of my head um you know i know that a lot of guys even guys some guys that i've guided uh just in in recent years just this last year on 13a he actually used to come up when he was you know younger just out of high school or whatever and, and hunt the strip and and he always talked about hunting on 13B down around Mount Delambaugh. Um, and so, but I, so I don't know when they split that or why they did or, or just what. Gotcha. Gotcha. And historically have bucks, you know, and we're talking in the lifespan of the strip. I mean, historically have equally as amount of big bucks come off of A as, as in B or did A used to be better than B or has B always been, in, in your mind or what you know of history has B always been a little bit better? Um, you know, honestly, as far as the caliber of bucks, I think, you know, uh, 13A has produced just as big a deer as 13B. Um, and, you know, and just depending on the year, you know, uh, the one thing with 13A is, is the deer will migrate from 13A down onto 13B. Like we actually, in I believe it was 2011, there was a buck that actually summered at our property up on Mount Trumbull up on 13A and we ended up killing him during the rifle hunt on 13B, uh, you know, 15, 15 miles from where he summered. And so you will have a lot of deer that will migrate off of 13A um, and stuff like that. But, but historically speaking, I would say, you know, there's been just as big a deer killed on 13A as there has on B. Um, and so it just kind of depends on the, on the year, obviously, and, and whatnot. But this, this last year, for instance, we were hunting a buck on 13A that, that we figured was around 240 inches. And so... Wow. A great buck. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and speaking about bucks, let's talk about what you're seeing. Uh, we're, we're looking at uh, March 3rd, uh, beginning of March here. We just had a nice storm come through. What is the forecast for 15 from a moisture standpoint? How have you seen that, you know, have the storm's been timely or uh, how was the winter? Give me a little con range conditions. Gotcha. We, uh, you know, obviously we, we had that really, really dry, dry, warm from January. We had, we had one storm come in January, like around the 1st of January. Um, and it, it produced a lot of snow. I mean, it snowed, you know, even here in St. George, which doesn't happen a whole lot, but we had that really good storm. And, and then we just had this storm that came through that, that, uh, it was a warmer storm. You know, it put some snow down, but it was a lot of rain and whatnot. And I think with these two storms uh, combined with the summer we had last year, I think we're going into this 2015 season in a really, you know, in a, it's going to be in really good shape. And obviously if we could get another storm or two um, from now till uh, May, you know, I think we'd be, it could be phenomenal. And just that with some of the bucks that made it through, I think, like I say, I think it could be a phenomenal year. Fantastic. Um, can you compare it uh, from what from what you're seeing or what you can forecast now? Is there a particular year that you can compare it to, or are you just going to stick with it? It's just going to be a great year. You know, I would love to say it's going to be another 2010, which any of your listeners out there that follow the strip know it was just unbelievable. I mean, I've never seen anything like a 2010 season. You know, there was like 13A, you know, we were talking about 13A bucks. I mean, there were there were literally like 10 220 plus bucks killed in the first three days of that uh, 2010 season. And, and it was just phenomenal, you know, and it, and that all was due to the, to the weather obviously, and, and, and the, the rut conditions and, and whatnot. But I would love to say a 2010 season, but I, I, I won't go out there and say that it's going to be that good. 
<laughs> yeah, my my question would be, you know, 2010, and and I'm not a strip expert at all. I mean, I I have 12 points and I keep applying for it, but you know, and only having been up there one time on Daniel's hunt with you, um, you know, no, I I shouldn't even really be talking about it. But from what I remember in 2010, um, the timing of the the you know 13A with the rut, it just seemed like uh the the uh, big bucks were on those does and and um it the, you know they just slayed them in a that year um and probably one of the best years ever my question is since a bunch of those big bucks got shot have you seen the decline in a as far as quality and you know with that many big bucks being shot is it safe to say that maybe we'll you know, we might not ever see that quality of, of bucks in one year taken. Yeah, I mean, it. you know, I, I would say we, we can and will probably see a year like that again. Um, obviously, after that 2010 season, you know, 13A was kind of, you know, all the biggest bucks that we knew about, you know, most of them were, were, were taken. Um, and then it, it was, it was kind of slow the last few years, but 13A is kind of on a uh, coming back a little bit, if you will. Um, as far as, you know, the, the size of bucks and, and whatnot. And so I, you know, I think, I think that we will see another 2010 season, uh, or, or similar to it. You know, I, it, it may be, you know, 13B may have a phenomenal year. Like, you know, in 2008, uh, I hunted with, uh, our mutual friend, Randy and Ron Charrington and, you know, 13, 13B that year, uh, we saw some rut activity, you know, right off the bat, you know, we had a, an early storm in uh, late October that came in and, and I think it just got those bucks or those does, I guess, really uh, going and, and uh, the bucks were hot on them. And so it, you know, 2008 was a phenomenal year in, in my opinion as well. And so what I hear you saying is, and, and for the listeners, uh, 13B hunt is always, I don't want to say always, but as far as I can remember is usually in front of the 13A hunt. Typically, the 13A hunt, you get a little bit more rutting activity, but you're saying in 2008 that you actually had a, had a good storm just before the season that got those um, does moving around, and obviously uh, the bucks were acting ruddy. How much of that do you think is temperature and weather-related, and how much of it do you think is just timing? I mean, that seems like a perfect case to say that if it gets cold and you know you get some snow and stuff that they could – turn on yeah they do and and you know you're right 13b the 13b hunt always starts the the week before a so arizona they kind of stagger the hunts you have 13b that starts uh first up here and then uh seven days later the 13a hunt starts and then right after that you have you know the some of the kaibab units 12b 12a um start the following week and so i think a lot of it is is kind of weather dependent um you know, obviously, like I said, 2008, we had had the uh, some snow. I was actually out on the strip. I think it was a couple weeks before the hunt actually started, but we got some snow and a real cold snap that came through. And I think it just got, I think that uh, that in and of itself kind of got those does, you know, got them in, in heat and those bucks uh, obviously followed. And so it made for a phenomenal, phenomenal hunt. Breck, if you would um, go through a, a handful of the bucks. Uh, I mean, you mentioned the Charrington last year. Uh, you know, Brian Rims's dad, Skip, a uh, good friend, mutual friend, shot a really nice buck. Uh, uh, Spencer Porter's wife a couple years back shot a nice buck. Obviously, Daniel Franco got a nice typical. Um, go through some of those bucks and, give you know, give me some uh, scores, give me some measurements, uh, kind of walk through some of the best bucks, uh, that you've been a part of. Gotcha. Um, back in 2005, I had the pleasure of guiding a, uh, Mississippi native. Uh, his name was Jeff Graves and this was his, uh, you know, he was a big time hunter, but it was his first, uh, mule deer hunt. And it was back, you probably remember, and, and your listeners may not know this, but Arizona was actually, uh, I guess you could call it sued or whatever, but, and they, because they have a 10% cap on non-residents. Um, anyway, they, that was done away with and some court ruling or whatever for, I think, a two-year period or one, might have just been the one year in 2005. But anyway, Jeff Graves was able to draw a 13A tag 
and you know his first mule deer hunt ever and out west and and everything and you know we had a great time hunting and and stuff but we were able to kill a 35 inch wide nine by five that growth scored 215 inches that was a really memorable hunt and you know i stay in contact with jeff he's a good friend of mine and and was that a buck um uh wreck was that a buck that you had seen quite a bit and had history with or was that a buck that you just found and you got on it and shot it or what kind of history was that we we actually we actually saw the buck the day before the hunt uh we hadn't seen him at all uh up until that day before the hunt and and I told Jeff, he, he was actually back in camp when I, when I, uh, me and my dad actually saw the buck and I went back to camp and I said, Jeff, I found the buck you're going to kill. And, and, uh, and it took us five days before we turned him up again, but finally turned him up and, and got him killed. And so it was, I told Jeff, it was going to be a, be a tough one to beat. And he's been trying ever since and hasn't been able to, uh, been able to beat that one. But that sounds like an awesome buck 215, uh, buck and then uh what are some of the other bucks and then, right? and then even that same year just sticking with 2005 since i i started with that um louis seiko a boston native um came out and hunted with us and and we killed a really neat uh massive i think he had 48 inches of mass he wasn't the highest scoring deer but he was around uh you know 190 had a had a bunch of cool eye guards and stuff like that but that was another neat buck and neat experience uh were both of those in B or in A? Uh, the Louis Seiko's uh, was actually on 13B, and then Jeff Jeff Graves' buck came off of 13A. Okay, okay. And then, you know, going back to, like, the Charringtons, I mean, it was just a phenomenal year. We started off, that's the first year that, uh, that uh, Arizona offered an archery hunt on the Arizona Strip, or I shouldn't, shouldn't say the first year. They did, you know, years and years ago, but uh, they hadn't allowed archery hunting on 13B, up until 2008 and a really good friend of mine, Chance Gledhill, who I believe you met Jay, but um, he actually drew the archery tag and, and ended up killing a really neat buck. He was super narrow. He was only like 24 inches wide, but um, ended up growth scoring like 226 inches and some change or something like that. Um, And I had actually seen the buck the the week before the hunt started and, and uh, you know, we got on him. He actually killed him sitting water um, which is obviously a, a, a really good on the strip, depending on the weather. You know, the last two years it's been tough setting water just because of the monsoon moisture that we've received. But so we started off that 2008 season with Chance killing that 227, and then obviously the Charringtons came up and hunted with me, and and we killed a, a buck that uh, we had nicknamed Heavy. We had I'd actually seen him and and you know filmed him, photographed him from 06. So we followed him for a couple years and. And 06, he was just a, you know, a great buck, had the potential. And, and then in uh, 2007, he blew up into, you know, we figured 200, 205 type of deer. Um, and then obviously in 2008, he was even bigger and, and he was on our hit list and we were able to get in and, and uh, kill him the first day of the hunt, actually. Um, Ron, Ron Charrington killed him. And I think he ended up growth scoring around 214 inches or something like that. And then, uh, the top buck that we were after, we had nicknamed him Cardiac, um, and so we hunted for him and actually uh, turned him up the third day and, and killed him, and those were all on 13B, and then we went from there up on 13A and killed a great 31-inch wide, 190-inch typical um, with 100 out of California, so um, those were, you know, that was just a really memorable, memorable year, and then, um, like you said, obviously Skip, this last season, we actually started out hunting a buck that... Uh, that we were hunting with uh, Daniel Franco, and you probably remember seeing the trail camera pictures of him and, <laughs> and whatnot, but we nicknamed him, Daniel came up with the nickname of Pitchfork, called him Pitchfork, and so we hunted him really hard with uh, his uh, father-in-law, uh, late father-in-law Chester Crandall, um, and had a great time hunting and, and great camp, good people, and and uh, that buck ended up winning and, and is still alive. We hunted him uh, with Skip, obviously this last season, and and just lives in a really tough spot that uh, that we couldn't turn him up in, and so we ended up switching the game plan up a little bit on day eight, and and went in and and uh, took the buck that uh, Skip killed, which is a buck that we had followed for I think three three or four seasons. You know, we had filmed him, photographed him, had trail camera pictures of him, and and uh, this last year was obviously his best year, and. He ended up uh, a fish. I, they, I think Brian had him officially scored SCI 
and he went like 220, uh, what was it, 225 and three eighths or something like that. So uh, just a just a great buck, and we hunted hard and and uh, finally turned him up and got him killed. But so obviously that was a great buck, and I mean I can rattle on and on and on, but (laughs) yeah, you know it's um it's uh for someone that isn't around those quality of bucks like you are you know they they all sound uh just giant and um you know i'm i'm looking forward to getting my strip tag one day uh you know it just uh seems like a magical place to be i want to circle back around um and talk about you mentioned something about sitting water on A and B on the archery hunt. So in general, I want to talk a little bit about the archery hunt, but more specifically, I want to double back to something you said. Uh, the last couple seasons have been tough because we've gotten monsoon moisture where when, when sitting water on the strip and you chime in at any time, sitting water on the strip, the key to that obviously is for to have dry conditions and, right before the hunt and during the hunt when you have a monsoonal flow flow of moisture you get those rains those bucks you know they go from you guys getting pictures on the trail camera virtually every day to maybe not coming in for how long a week to 10 days talk about how the timing of that season is hit or miss as far as the moisture okay yeah um oh let's see what was it uh 2013 my brother had actually drawn a 13a archery tag um and it was you know we had the bucks coming in we had you know just right down to the you know where we thought okay it's going to happen and then and then the the storms came in and those bucks didn't show back up on water for uh, a month i mean it rained that much to where they just didn't need to come to water and and so it, it is it's you know obviously we're looking for you know hot dry conditions um and which makes the archery hunt, you know, obviously setting water is a, is a, is a, you know, probably going to give you the best opportunity to, you know, to kill a buck and, uh, you know, get the shot opportunity and whatnot. Um, you know, we obviously do a lot of spot and stock as well. And, you know, we've had, had a few bucks that we've killed spot and stock, but primarily, you know, setting water is the, is key up there, up here on the strip. And so, you know, we, uh, we had a buck in 2012. It was actually Trace Porter's buck that he killed. It rained, I think it rained two inches uh, the day before the hunt started. And, you know, we just kind of stuck with the game plan of having Trace sit the water that we had a particular buck we'd been watching for a couple of years. Um, had him sit in the water while, you know, everybody else was glassing, trying to turn the buck up. And, and it took, I think it was day six, five or six, the buck uh, finally came back into water. It stayed dry long enough uh, long enough for him to to want to come in and have get a drink and so that weather is you know those archery hunts they're they're really tough just because of of that weather you just can't predict you know what it's going to do and not saying that if it you know if it rains a lot i mean you still have good opportunities um you know at spot and stock spot and stock certain bucks and so um you know it just it 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 is a lot better in my opinion if it's if it's hot and dry and, and you can sit water it makes for a lot better hunt Breck, um, that's great stuff. I, I want to ask you about, um, I know you and, and, and some of your competitors up on the strip. I know a bunch of you run a lot of trail cameras. One of the questions I want to ask you is, from a predictability standpoint, how predictable, say, before the season when it is hot and there's, you know, say you get a two-week dry spill, um, are those bucks watering every day, every single day? No, they're not. Some of the bigger bucks, they'll even, even with the hot and dry conditions, they'll go, you know, three or four or five days without coming to water, you know, or they're watering at some spot that, you know, there aren't too many, but some spot that I, I don't know about or, or whatever. And so, um, it, and then, and then the next question following along with that is, um, how often like that buck pitchfork or, you know, other people have nicknames for them. How often is that buck just completely predictable, and then does his pattern change because, you know, people roll in, and, and is that why people haven't been able, why you, why other people haven't been able to kill him because of his changing his pattern? Yeah, you know, this last year, it's kind of funny, we actually saw him the day before the hunt, me and my hunter saw a pitchfork on the, during the archery hunt, we saw him in the velvet, 
and he was right off the side of the road, you know, and, and that's the, that's actually one of the first, that is the first time I actually saw him, you know, and, and he just lives in a really, that particular buck lives in a really tough, tough spot. You know, it's really thick, um, a lot of cover for him and whatnot, but we thought we had a chance and, and there was another archery hunter that actually, uh, actually hit him the first day of the hunt, just probably two or 300 yards from where we were hunting. And, and the buck actually, that particular buck actually survived being hit with an arrow. You know, he was hit just a little high and in that void, but, um, so it makes a, you know, made it, made it, I don't know, enticing to try to go back. Cause he actually did. He changed his pattern obviously after he was, he was hit and moved, you know, I don't know, four or five miles, but then just, you know, a, uh, I don't know, a couple weeks, two or three weeks before the, the rifle hunt started, he'd actually moved right back into his same pattern. And, um, and, you know, so we thought for sure we were going to have an opportunity to get him. But like I say, he just lives in a really tough spot where, you know, it's thick and a lot of cover for him, not a lot of great vantage points to glass from and stuff like that. And how, how hard is it sometimes Breck, uh, knowing, having uh cameras all over the units and knowing a bunch of different bucks and their locations talk to me a little bit as an outfitter and as a hunter the the mental mental anguish you go through of trying to decide which buck to hunt and how much does is a is there a buck that we can actually kill how much does that play into it or do you just go after the biggest one you know and tell me some of the challenges with knowing about so many good bucks to go after the the turmoil that it causes yeah it definitely does cause uh some turmoil you know i i usually you know our my outfitting business i mean it's just we're small you know we don't do it for uh, a living you know it's it's because we love to you know we're addicted if you will <laughs> and so you know for us we don't book a ton of hunters you know so i me personally, I usually let the hunter decide, you know, like with Brian and Skip, you know, I, I was sending them trail camera pictures and video and, and whatnot and, and just said, hey, we can go after, you know, Pitchfork. Uh, he's a tough deer to kill. He's in a tough spot, you know, and we have some of these other bucks that, that are, are more killable just in, in uh, better uh, country, if you will, you know, more glassing spots, more open, um, stuff like that. But I but I personally, I leave it up to the hunter. You know, I say, hey, which deer do you want to go after? I tell them, hey, it's going to be a tough one to kill or, or we can get this deer, you know, and, and stuff like that. And so so me personally, it's it's up to the hunter. I let them decide which deer which deer they want to go after. And, and you know, obviously our goal is to kill a 200-inch buck. Um, um, and, you know, we've been pretty successful at doing that. And a lot of it is because of the you know, obviously the use of trail cameras, it's a kind of a love-hate relationship with trail cameras. Um, I, you know, we use them. It gives us the, the ability to scout the entire unit, you know, both units, 13B, 13A. Um, and, you know, the bad thing about them is all the other big outfitters, you know, several of them, you know, they know everything I know, you know. with Without the use of trail cameras, it would be, it would make it, uh, make it better to where we could hunt deer that, you know, other outfitters didn't know about. And so, um, like I say, I love, love, love using them, love getting the pictures and stuff like that. But it's, uh, it's kind of made it to where, you know, we might be hunting the same deer that, you know, 10 other guys are hunting just because of trail cameras. And so. Let me ask you a question in, in hypothetical here. I mean, and I, I know that, you know, the, the trail camera thing has been controversial for years and what have you, in my mind, you know, it's a phenomenal scouting tool. Um, you know, I don't use cameras much, but I don't live where you live. And, and um, you know, so my question to you would be, if they ever made changes to the regulation, which, you know, every year we hear that they're going to do this and they're going to do that, and it doesn't seem like they do anything. If they did, um, you know, make it where you can use trail cameras all summer long, but the day the season starts or you know, uh, two weeks before the season, all cameras have to be lifted. In your mind, would that make actually for a better hunt as far as maybe not being able to efficiently kill deer, but would it make a little more uh, spread people out a little bit more? 
Yeah, I I think it would. Um, just like I say, you know, you get you get certain deer. I know that that year that you came up uh, on Daniel Franco's hunt, one of the deer that we actually started out hunting had moved, you know, 20 miles, <laughs> and and we didn't check the camera obviously until after the season. But I think it would. I think it would help spread people out um, somewhat. The 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 problem is is everybody knows, uh, you know, where these where the biggest bucks are because of trail cameras. And so, you know, obviously, you know, if they know the, the, the strip and know what the deer will do, where they're going to move and whatnot, then, you know, it's going to be right there. You know, they'll be right there with you still. But, um, but I think it would, it would kind of help, uh, help spread people out somewhat. Um, probably not a whole, whole lot, but, but it would for sure. And, you know, from an outsider looking in, you know, if, if that were to ever happen, I would certainly thank someone like yourself and, you know, there's, there's local guides there. And then there's some that, you know, live 200, 300 miles away. I I've got to think eventually if the, if the, you know, camera restrictions come in some form or fashion, you know, I think it just goes back to who knows the country the best and um, who's putting in the most time and, and uh, you know, just back to deer hunting. I think, my only thing with trail cameras um, in general is I, I'm, I, I don't, you know, I don't like to see any of our hunting tools or things we use go away. But I think at some point in time, uh, people feel like they own certain deer. And, I, you know, this is an outsider's perspective. People feel like they own certain deer because they have a picture of them. And I, 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 I'm not so sure that that's good for hunting for 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 our legacy and for our tradition um but you know that's my opinion um moving on uh breck uh what's the biggest mule deer you've ever seen and been involved with um period well the biggest i would say the biggest i've actually filmed um, I, you know, I've seen some giant bucks when I was younger before we, you know, really started filming and stuff like that. But the biggest buck that I've actually seen and, and been a part of uh, hunting and whatnot was uh, the famous lucky buck. You're probably familiar with that, um, with that buck. But um, anyway, the year, the year before he was killed, which was 2011, um, I had, uh, was guiding Kelly Porter and her husband, Spencer, actually came up the week before the hunt to, to spend the weekend with me on the strip scouting. And we actually glassed Lucky up, um, so it would have been 2010. And Now, is this A or B? This, this is B. This is 13B. Okay. Um, okay. But anyway, we, we glassed him up, knew he was a heck of a deer. You know, we, we figured he was probably a 240-plus-inch deer. Um, but we glassed him up the week before the hunt, so we hunted him pretty much ex exclusively for, you know, the first five days of the, of the, the season before we uh, turned up another buck that, that Kelly ended up killing. And it was a great buck, you know, 200 inch deer. Um, and it was her first deer hunt ever. And so, uh, had a phenomenal time, but, but that year before, uh, you know, we saw him, we didn't, we weren't able to get any video. We glassed him up at a distance and whatnot, but my brother actually went in there, uh, uh, the spring of 2011 and found one, side one shed off of him one side and we we looked uh all over the place me and my dad my brother we've we've still been looking but we have just scoured the country trying to find the other side but um so that was kind of cool and then and then you know my brother kept saying in 2011 he kept saying breck why don't you go why don't you go you know film lucky or find lucky and so i was like yeah i'm gonna get out there so I, anyway i get out first day i go out to look for him i turn him up now, now this this is after the seasons this, right this, this is after the season and, and and approaching the 2011 season this was in the summer i believe it was like uh oh crap i don't know the date end of july first part of august but uh anyway i go out and i see him and I, i'm able to get some phenomenal video you know i glassed him at a distance and and he lived in some some real tough country but he and three or four other bucks that were with him uh, crossed a road and went out in some real thick stuff. So I went down and, and, uh, you know, followed him, just tracked him up and, uh, was able to get within about a hundred yards and take some phenomenal, phenomenal video of him. And, and, uh, so anyway, I, I showed the video to, uh, Ryan Hatch with Muley Crazy, who was guiding Alan Hamberlin, who had bought the, one of the auction tags and they were hunting a different buck actually up on 13A. 
And once they saw the video of Lucky, they uh, immediately pulled off and, and the hunt began. And Alan, uh, the first day Alan came up to hunt him, we actually turned him up right in the exact same spot that I had seen him, you know, a couple weeks earlier. And uh, we turned him up and, and got him, you know, glassed him and watched him and, and whatnot. And I actually uh, watched him bed. And so we kind of put a game plan together and, and Ryan and Alan and uh, went in on him and got within, I think it was 300 yards and, and Alan got a good broadside shot and actually missed him. <laughs> and, oh man. Yeah. A two, and he, he's a, he's a, you know, 268 inch deer or something, 40, almost 42 inches wide. But so it, that was kind of disheartening for everybody when that went down. And I think, and Alan's known as being a crack shot. Yeah, too. yeah, he is. I mean, he doesn't miss, you know. And so Ryan, you know, obviously Ryan got it all on video, and it's some phenomenal video. It's in uh, what his last video, I think, uh, uh, get, getting lucky on the strip or something like that. But um, but anyway, it took about, uh, and he was in the velvet at that time. This was in August, and and then uh, it took about, I think it was, I don't know, three weeks or a month or something before we before we were finally able to kill him, and so. That was a fun, memorable hunt. How how big did he end up going? He, roughly? he ended up going. He's a, a ten by ten. He's uh, about forty one and a half inches wide, and he ended up gross scoring, I believe, two hundred sixty eight inches or something like that. But he has a just a giant frame on him. He's got a two hundred twenty four inch four point mainframe, and um, he has like twenty the biggest back end on a deer I've ever seen. He has like has like twenty two inch G twos and you know, 14, 15 inch threes and 14, 15 inch fours. And, and so just a, just a giant frame deer with, with, uh, like bunch of, 40, 40 inches of trash. Yeah. On. Yep. Exactly. Yep. So big, wow. big cheaters and just what you dream about when you come to the strip to, to hunt, you know, just a, a buck of a lifetime. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Um, just an unbelievable deer. Congratulations to the whole group on that. Um, what do you see as far as um you know bucks in the future i mean do you do you do you know of some growers out there that have chance to be you know just lucky caliber type of deer um obviously they shot some great bucks last year on the you know with the, some of the auction tags and stuff uh, are there some up and comers out there? there there are there are there's uh there's some some uh giant bucks that made it through the season and that's one of the reasons i think this this coming year, this 2015 season is going to be phenomenal. You know, there's, uh, and those are some of the older mature deer. And then, you know, then you've got a lot of the, a lot of these young up and comers that, that, you know, could just blow up, you know, and that's one thing with the strip. I mean, you never know, you could have a 180 inch buck, you know, this last year, 2014, he may turn into a 220 inch deer this, this coming season, you know, depending on the moisture and whatnot. And so, that's just, you know, the, the, the genetics and stuff up here on the strip are just unbelievable. But. Yeah, and, and how much, um, how critical is it uh, from, from what we have now moisture-wise, have we passed the most critical point, or do you think there's still, you know, is there a month left where we need storms, or could it, if, if it just kind of shut off and just kind of stayed with the norm, uh, would it be a phenomenal year, or do we still need uh, more to, 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 to get it to be phenomenal? I think we need more to get it to be phenomenal. I think right now, if we just, you know, if, say we didn't get another storm, you know, um, until we start getting the monsoon moisture in the summer. I think with, with last year's monsoon season during the summer, the moisture we got there, then, and then the moisture we've received up to this point, I still think we're going to have an above-average year. Um, but I think if we could get some, you know, two or three good storms, I think it could be a phenomenal year as far as, you know, antler growth and, and the feed and, and stuff like that. But That's awesome. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the gear that you use um, and that you have used. Um, as far as camera gear, are you shooting most stuff with the, with the still camera or using a video camera? What do you, what do you use to photograph and, and video these deer? Um, I use, I have, you know, multiple cameras, but my, my primary cameras that I use is, uh, is a little Panasonic, um, and I can't remember the model number, HDC 1000 or something, um, like that. That's what I use for, for filming. And then I have a, a Canon, uh, SLR 60D camera that I use for still photography. Um, and I'm actually, I'm wanting to upgrade. They came out, Canon came out with a, uh, 
oh, I believe it's a, what is it, a 70D that uh, actually has autofocus, autofocusing, which will be great because then I could just use it for filming and photographing, um, you know, with my, I have a 500 millimeter uh, lens that I use. It's not a, one of the high, high-end lenses, but it, you know, does a, does a pretty good job. But, um, and then, and, oh, go and you have a um, lot of photos and videos on your website. Uh, can you tell me uh, uh, what your website is? I believe it's muledeeraddiction.com or what's your website? Yeah, yes, it is. It's muledeeraddiction.com. And then also, you know, we do quite a bit of stuff on Facebook. Haven't, haven't uh, as of late, but it's just uh, if you look for MDA Outfitters on Facebook, you can find us on Facebook as well. And then we're also on uh, Instagram. I, I, Kind of enjoy Instagram. It's kind of fun. You can just throw up a photo, you know, and and uh, get people excited and and. Stuff. So is it MDA Outfitters it, on Instagram? It is. Yeah. Okay. MDA. It's at MDA Outfitters on Instagram. Um, I follow you and enjoy seeing your photos. Okay. So that's camera equipment. As far as glassing, um, uh, are you into the long range glasses yet or, or what are you using for, for binoculars? Um, for binoculars, me and my dad, we both use the Leica, Leica dual vids. And, and the reason being, it's not that they're, you know, uh, maybe the best glass, but we have a pair of 10 and 15, you know, right there at our, at our disposal, rather than having most of my, my like my brother and, and some of my friends and stuff that guide for me. You know, they're using Swarovski, the new 1556 HD SLCs, and, and I mean, just a phenomenal glass, you know, that, that Swarovski. And so I, I've stuck with the, the Leica Duo Vids, like I say, just because I have that ability. I have 10 and 15 just with the, with the uh, twist of an eyepiece, you know. And so that, sure. that's what we use. And then we all use uh, Swarovski spotting scopes, and we are into the, to the long-range glass. We have uh, uh, three three pairs of uh, the Koa Highlanders, and they're just phenomenal. You know, 32, I've just got the 32 times eyepieces. My brother's got the 50s as well. Um, but, you know, you just can't go wrong with those Koas. They're just an unbelievable glass. If you're going to be looking, you know, at long ranges, you know, three, four, five, six miles out, um, you just, you can't beat them. Yeah, I mean, I, I I used to use the Doctor, the 40 super wide angles, and really liked them. Um, but then as soon as I looked through the Koas, although I gave up eight power, the the clarity, the edge to edge clarity, and just the crispness of the Koas is is fantastic. And you know, you can vouch for this. I, I mean, I tell people that I can look at a deer, an elk, or a sheep sometimes a couple miles away, and I can tell you what it is, and they're like, no way. I'm like, well, okay, look, you know, get get a pair yourself and look through it. I mean, you can tell whether it's a buck or, you know, a ram or something you need to go after for sure. I mean, you always need your spotting scope to really get definition, but it, it uh, the big binoculars uh, definitely in my book uh, takes it to a whole new level. Yes, it does. I mean, there's no question. When I first, I'm kind of like you, I I looked through a pair of doctors and, and, you know, they weren't, I actually about bought a pair of fixed uh, 40 power pair of doctors and, and they just weren't, you know, super comfortable on my eye. And I mean, you know, they're great glass, but um, then I used or looked through a pair of the Koas and I was like you, I was sold on them. I mean, they're just phenomenal. But, uh, and like you say, you, you know, you're never going to be able to uh, give up that, you, you know, your spotting scope. Um, but, but at the same time, when you're looking for hours and hours, you know, through these big binoculars, I mean, you just can't beat it. We we actually, my brother glassed up a buck bedded a couple years ago uh, with the Koas, the 32 times eyepieces at four miles away. The buck was bedded, and and like you say, he couldn't, you know, he he knew it was a good buck that we needed to take a look at, but um, but you know, without the, that's when you put your spotting scope on, you know, crank the power up to 60, and and you can get in in on them pretty tight and get a good idea of what they are, but. But yeah, it's it's crazy, you know, two three miles out. That's that's you know, definitely uh, within the the realm of glassing with the with the big binoculars, you know. And even beyond that, you know, you can four or five miles out, you can at least get eyes on on the deer. So. Absolutely, um, Rick. What kind of uh, UTV or ATVs? What are you running? Um, what are you running up there? Well, I I ran I've run pretty much everything, but I you know when I first uh, bought a, an ATV. I, you know, was a, a Honda guy, which you can't go wrong with the Hondas. I mean, they're, they're a great machine. And, 
But I went uh, from a, a Honda Foreman, which is like a 400 or 450 or whatever. I went from that to a to a Honda Rubicon, which was a, you know a 500. And then after that, I actually switched. I rode a Yamaha Grizzly and was sold on it. it you know, power steering and the the suspension and whatnot. I mean, it was a great great four wheeler. But now, obviously, I I'm running side by sides, which just gives you the the ability to carry all your gear and and everything. But I I was running up until just uh, around the first of the year. I was running a, a Can-Am Commander, which was a, a great machine, and I put a lot of miles on it. Um, but I, my brother, uh, Bronson, got a Razor, four-seat Razor, and I drove in that thing, and I was sold from the minute I got, got in it. And so I, uh, I ended up selling my Can-Am and, and just bought a, a four-seat Razor 1000. So. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, Rimses have one and they say Ryan really likes it. Uh, I haven't ridden in one yet, but I hear they're just fantastic. Um, uh, yeah. What kind of tires? Um, I, let's talk about miles for a second and tell me about tires, because I think I remember when I was in your camp, you said you put some astronaut, the amount of miles you told me you put on on one year was it blew my mind on, on a can. I think it was on your Can-Am. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I put, like, my Can-Am that I just sold, I think I had, uh, oh, I want to say I had around uh, four or 5,000 miles on it, and I'd only had it for about a year or something like that. And so, you know, we just, we rack up the miles. My old Grizzly that I was saying, the Yamaha Grizzly, I think when I traded it in to get the, the side-by-side, I think I had, like, ten or 12,000 miles on it, you know, and, and – uh, and so it's it's just crazy the amount of miles that we that we run you know uh, just even in a weekend you know I'm out pretty much every I spend two or three days a week on the strip you know from you know obviously usually Easter because I'll take my family out and and we spend time at our property up on 13A and and stuff but uh, so you know from Easter on clear through you know December January we're we're just racking up the miles whether it's on our side by sides or you know our 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 trucks you know we just we put a lot of miles on, but the, the tires, you know, obviously the strip it's, it's known for chewing up tires and it does too. It'll, it'll eat up tires in a hurry, but, um, I've been running, oh, the last several years, I've been running the Toyo, uh, MT, the Toyo mud terrain, and they've just been an excellent tire. They're a 10, 10 ply rated tire. And, and, you know, when I get out there on the strip, I'll air them down to, um, you know, 12 pounds of, of pressure in the tire and it just, it rides a lot better. And, and it, uh, it, you know, handles, you know, makes it so you're, you're not as likely to get a hole in the, in the actual tread, but you are in the sidewall. But it's just a really well-constructed tire that, that uh, takes the abuse of the, the strip roads. And let's be honest about this. Those tires are set at that pressure. So when you go around those corners <laughs> as fast as you do, that you're still on all four <laughs> wheels and don't go on two wheels. That's, that's, that's <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Um, are you, have you found a tire in the, um, in the UTVs? Have you found a tire that's better than others? You know, I, I, I prefer the Maxxis tires and that's what a lot of these side-by-sides are coming with now, um, is the Maxxis Bighorn. Um, uh, I had really good luck on my Can-Am with all the miles I put on it. I, I, you know, was still on the factory set of tires, which were Maxxis Bighorns. And, and that's same with the Razor. It co- comes with the Maxxis Bighorns and, and so I've been a fan of those. I mean, they're, they're a good tire, good tire for, you know, ATVs for, you know, side by sides, whatever. They've been a, been a phenomenal tire. Rick, tell me what's your advice to someone that's, that, uh, cannot afford a guide on the strip, uh, whether it be, uh, archery or rifle, um, as far as preparation and, you know, give me a little bit of advice uh, to someone that that can afford a guide, what they should be prepared for, and you know, how many spare tires should they take, and you know, give give me a little bit of background on that. Okay, yeah, I would say to anybody that's going to do it on on their own, obviously, spend as much time as possible up here. I mean, it's you know, you get up here and and it's just so there's so much country, it's so vast, and and there's not a lot of deer. I mean, the deer the the strip is not known for for the, the number of deer. I mean, the deer density is really low. And so obviously the biggest thing would be to get up here, scout it, you know, as hard as you can, uh, run a few trail cameras. If you can, uh, if you can, you know, if you can afford to run a few cameras, um, you know, talk to as many people as possible, get some ideas on where you want to start 
you know, looking and, and whatnot. Um, and, and, and then just put the time in. I mean, that's, that's key. I mean, you know, for us, we're, we're doing it two, three days a week. Um, and, and so that's, you know, a lot of the reason we've been as, as successful is we just, we spend that time and, and get to know the deer. We know where they're moving and whatnot. And so for somebody doing it on their own, you know, I would say, you know, come up, scout it as much as possible, always bring as much fuel as possible. Um, and spare tires. Like when, when you say that, I mean, I, I talk to a guy, he's like, I'm headed to the strip and I have, you know, two gas cans. And I'm like, two gas cans, <laughs> that's going to get you back, maybe back to town. But you're talking like get like 50 gallons yeah, of gas, right? Exactly. That's, you know, we, I think on this uh, last hunt with the rims is I, I had hauled the uh, 70 gallons worth of fuel out, you know, and so, and it just depends. I mean, if you're going to be hunting closer, you know, you can hunt just 30 minutes out, out of St. George and there's some great great country, you know, um, and some great bucks. And, and so it just depends, you know, from year to year, obviously there's, there's some, some great bucks up here on the North end. And then, you know, some years you, you go South and like you said, you know, South is 90 miles from any gas station, you know? And so yeah. as much fuel as possible. Yeah. I'd say 50 gallons, 60 gallons, if you're going to be hunting that far out, but. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. It's, it's definitely one of those things, you know, a strip tag, when you start weighing your own personal trips up there and scouting and, and uh, the amount of fuel there and back and, you know, you start weighing all that and then you weigh in the, the price for a guide. It's like, you know, when you really pencil it out, uh, paying for a guide on the Arizona Strip, in my mind, seems like one of the most reasonable things that there is. It's not like, you know, you got a unit nine elk tag where you got, you know, two Zeon right there and you got food and gas and everything right there. I mean, you're talking about way out in the middle of nowhere, and I think some people, until they get up there, they don't understand the vastness of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's for sure. I mean, and you know, once you once you do, you get up here, and you you know, you. I, I mean, I just I can't imagine uh, me myself coming up, you know, and I, I'm a I'm a kind of do-it-yourself type guy myself, you know, as far as hunting, you know, in Utah or, or wherever it may be. But um, like you say, you know, I've and that's why a lot of guys that I've actually guided, you know, they start putting the the uh, pencil the paper and adding up what it's going to cost in fuel to, to drive up from, you know, Phoenix or, or wherever it may be from California or, or whatever. And, and it's just, you know, the, the cost for a guided hunt is actually, uh, less than what it would cost them to scout it and do it right, you know, and scout it hard. And so, yeah. Um, Breck, let's talk a little bit about, um, what it takes to make a trophy mule deer, uh, in your mind and, some of the things that, you know, little tips and things that, sh that um, obviously someone sees a 260-inch, you know, lucky buck, they're going to go, yeah, that's big. But um, from a field judging standpoint, I mean, what are you looking for to get to the, you know, say the magical 200 number or, you know, more in general, you know, are there some certain frame-wise, you know, height, width, what are you looking for that, that, that uh, makes bucks that you're going after yeah we uh you know with back when i was a kid you know and and you probably remember it was always with you know everybody wanted a, a 30 inch wide buck that was the 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 thing that everybody hunted for was a 30 inch buck and now it's kind of got to the point where um you know it's hey i want to you know i want a 200 inch deer or, or whatever and so width is kind of out the window you know like i was telling you with chance gladhill's buck i mean it was a you know 227 inch buck that was only 24 inches wide but what we're looking for is is obviously time length, you know, the taking a look at the, the main frame of the buck, you know, how long are his G2s, how long are his G3s, his 4s, his beams, um, you know, stuff like that. And then obviously the mass, you know, what kind of mass does he have, you know, and it's, it's uh, you know, that's one thing about the strip. I mean, these deer are known to be just massive, uh, have a lot of mass and weight to them and stuff. And, and, uh, and so that's kind of what we look at, you know, and, and with the use of obviously trail cameras and then deer that we filmed and photographed, we can, you know, sit here on our computer and analyze them to death sometimes, you know, and, and, uh, and, and kind of get an idea of score. And it, and it makes it really, it makes it really nice when you're going after bucks that you know, and you've, you know, you've put the, put the numbers on them and, you know, and usually we're, we're pretty close. We try to stay on the lower end and be surprised. It's like with Skip's deer, we, we had no idea, you know, we knew he was a great buck and we knew he was, you know, we figured he was probably 215 or somewhere right in there and, and just couldn't get him anything over that. And then, you know, we get him on the ground and obviously tape him out. And every measurement was, 
was longer than what we had thought, you know, and, and so. And, and speaking specifically about that buck, um, I had a, I had, have had it, had, I've had it over time. I've had it happen to me several times where bucks that have quite a bit of mass, the mass hides the length of the point. And in Skip's buck in particular, 225 or whatever it ended up at, did the mass hide the length in the photos? That's my first question. And the second question is, do you think trail camera pictures actually make most deer look smaller? Yes, they, they do for sure. But I think I'm totally with you. The, the mass hides length big time. And, and these strip deer, people don't realize these strip deer, like for instance here in Utah, you know, the deer have, you know, 24-inch ears tip to tip. These strip deer, I've seen deer that have had 28-inch ears tip to tip. And so, so it can be really deceiving um, uh, uh, how big the deer actually is, you know. And, but trail cameras, I mean, they, they can be so deceiving. If you have a side view or a head-down angle on a deer, it, it just doesn't do them justice. You know, you, you've got to get a good head-on uh, photo of them looking in, in the camera to, to be able to really put the – to put the numbers to them, you know, and, and obviously in, in Skip's Buck's uh, case, we'd had three, we had three years, have three years worth of video of him. And, and I'd actually seen him just a couple weeks before the, before the hunt started and got some pretty good video. And then, uh, and then my good friend, Brett, that guides for me, Brett Simonson, he, uh, you know, saw him just a couple days before the hunt. And he says that, you know, looking at him in the glass, you know, he could tell that he was probably bigger than what we were, than what we were coming up with as looking at the trail camera photo. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, mass and with elk and, and with deer, uh, mass hides a lot of length. I mean, there's been a lot of cases where animals are much bigger than I thought. And when you walk up, you realize how heavy they are and it just makes those points just look shorter. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's all good stuff. Um, but point length, uh, number one in your book is looking at point length and having good separation between the points and, and good, Main beams and point length. Correct. Yep. Absolutely. Look at the, you know, starting with the the G2. You know, if it's if you get a G2 that's 18 inches long, you know, you you've got a, a great start. And then obviously, yeah, the the split. You know, where the where the G G3 splits off the off the two. You know, and stuff like that. You know, you can get a good idea of uh, of of what the buck is. You know. Yeah, and um, you know, sometimes when a buck has crabby, you know, front forks. Um, talk to me about some of the deceiving part of, you know, crabby bucks. Um, you know, how do you feel like if, if a G4 actually kind of parallels the main beam, uh, and it looks crabby, have you seen that where actually the G4 is longer than you think? It's just not pointing up. It's more pointing at a parallel level with the beam. Have you seen that? We, we have, we've seen that. And, and on one buck in particular that I've seen the last two or three years, he's a, He's an old, old deer, and he's, you know, same thing. He's not going to be a super, super high-scoring buck, but he's got the width. He's got the mass that, like we've talked about, hides some of his length. But he, and I think he's, I think he's really deceiving because of that. His G4 kind of parallels the beam, and it makes it look like he's really crabby and not, you know, doesn't have that long of a G4 when, in reality, if you were to get him on the ground, you know, I think he would, he's one of those deer that would surprise you and score a lot better than, than, than you think, you know, and so there's, there's, a, there's a definitely a lot of, you know, I wouldn't say a lot of bucks, you know, that we're looking at that, that look crabby, but, but there are bucks out there like that, that, uh, that are, are deceiving because of that. Absolutely. Well, Breck, it's been an awesome hour spending it here with you. And, uh, it's obvious why your outfitting business is, uh, um, mule deer addiction because uh you know knowing you personally i just know you live and breathe these deer and my hat's off to you for the success that you've had and more importantly my hat's off to you to the to the guy and the character that you have and and uh you know i look forward to uh seeing you again and i'd like to check back in with you maybe in mid-summer and just see how the bucks are growing and get a little update from you and and uh, hopefully between now and when we talk again uh we'll get a bunch of, get get a bunch more rain and just have a unbelievable banner year and um just just want to thank you for being with us and once again uh have you tell my listeners where they can find you how they can contact you and uh 
and uh, thanks for being with us. Oh, you bet, Jay. It was a it was a pleasure. It's always good uh, talking with you. But uh, your listeners can uh, get a hold of me through my uh, website. It's muledeeraddiction.com, or they can check us out on Facebook, uh, MDA Outfitters, or Instagram, MDA Outfitters, um, and get a hold of us that way. Sounds great, buddy. Well, you um, tell the family hello, and um, we'll hope for more moisture and, and uh, big antlers ahead. Hey, sounds good, Jay. All right, buddy. Take care. Thanks hey, for being with hey, us. You too. Thanks. Well, what an awesome show with Mr. Breck Bundy of Mule Deer Addiction Outfitters out of Utah. The guy knows the strip like the back of his hand. Uh, he's just a high-class individual. want to really thank him for being with us. I want to thank you, our listeners at J. Scott Outdoors Podcast, uh, for, for listening. And uh, if you like what you're hearing, go on iTunes and give us a five-star rating. Uh, that helps us. And uh, uh, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them directly to me at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. You can continue to follow on our website, our progress at jscottoutdoors.com. You can follow on Instagram at jscottoutdoors. We have a YouTube channel that people like, and that's jscottoutdoors. You can also find us on our uh, Facebook page, jscottoutdoors. And I just want to thank all our listeners. I also want to put a shout out there to uh, Corby Taylor with uh, Wild Game Hunting Podcast. Uh, Just a great guy. He actually did an interview with me over the summer. Uh, which was my first podcast. I was a guest on his show. And uh, if you if you haven't already tuned into his podcast, you should. Wild Game Hunting Podcast, Corby Taylor. Uh, he just has a real popular show and does a great job and is a, is a great guy. So I want to thank him for all of his support and for, for his help with uh, creating this podcast. And until next time, guys, God bless.